tells us that uh, the heavens shout the glory of God. All the worship band did this morning was added words. So can we say a thank you to God and the worship band? Like many of you, I've been lots of places in the world, and there aren't many as beautiful as this. It's pretty spectacular. Well, as Mark said, we're doing a uh, kind of a theme through the summer on identity theft. Um, My thought, my perspective is that culture has stolen uh, the meaning of who Jesus is, the person of Jesus. So it's very confusing in our culture to try to figure out who Jesus is. You have everything from those that don't believe he's God, he's, he's just a peasant, to those who believe he's a great teacher, to those who don't even know who he is, Jesus Christ. We hear that all the time, right? And uh, it's just an exclamation. And so what we wanted to do was take some time and look through the Gospels, especially John, and get some snapshots of who this Jesus is. So we've talked about uh, John 2, the wedding of Cana on the third day. Remember that? It wasn't really the third day. That's an expression. On the third day, God is breaking into our world. He is here, and uh, we need to find out who he is. And you've got to remember, this is in the context of a world where they had many gods, lots and lots and lots of gods. And so the thought of God breaking into the world was unheard of, especially since they didn't want that to happen. They didn't like the gods particularly. Gods were to be appeased. They were afraid of the gods. And so to have a God break into our world, we believe the one true living God, and communicate with us about what it means to love him and serve him and what we were created for is pretty spectacular. And then in John 3, we had uh, Nicodemus. And uh, Nicodemus was one of my favorite stories. We talked about confusion last week. Uh, Nicodemus, Jesus said, you're the teacher of Israel. He's one of the highest of the high. And he's scratching his head saying, what on earth are you talking about? And today in John 4, we have a whole nother story. The story of Jesus' encounter with a Samaritan woman. And so we're going to walk through this. This story is filled with lots of irony. It's filled with lots of surprises. It's filled with lots of uh, cultural embarrassment. Jesus doing things that you just don't do. And uh, we get a glimpse that Jesus, once again, has a lot of courage and he's rebellious and he's not afraid to tackle the status quo. So, you heard there at the beginning. Now, Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although, in fact, it was not Jesus who was baptizing, but his disciples. Now, why would John give us that little tiny bit of information? Those are the kinds of questions I like to ask. Why did he write that in there? I think it's to let us know that Jesus' ministry was very successful and very powerful. Jesus is having incredible ministry. Well, wouldn't we expect the Messiah to do that? I would. So Jesus' ministry is very successful. And so what does he do? do? He leaves and goes to a different place. Welcome to the study of Jesus. Jesus often moves in surprising ways. Most of us, when we have a successful ministry, we like to stay there. Not Jesus. He said, I'm out of here. I'm going someplace else. But why? Then you heard Mark bring attention in verse 4. He had to go through Samaria. Mark, what did the King James say? He must needs go through Samaria. All right. He didn't have to go through Samaria. In fact, the Jews never went through Samaria. They avoided Samaria. He's going from the south to the north, and he uh, is going to go through Samaria, but he doesn't have to. When the Jews traveled from the south to the north, they would cross over and go around Samaria and rather go through it. 
So why does it say he had to go through Samaria? In order to make sense of this, you have to understand just a little bit about Samaria. The Samaritans, the people of Samaria, and the Jews, they didn't get along. They didn't really like each other. They, the Jews considered the Samaritans kind of half-Jews, half-breeds, if you will. And that goes back a long, long ways. In 722 B.C., when the Assyrians took Israel and they deported them, uh, they left some Jews in the land just to kind of keep it, uh, the farming going, and it's producing wealth. And so they left Jews in the land, but the Assyrians didn't stop there. They moved a bunch of their own people in to make sure the people that they left wouldn't rise up against them. So you have these two groups of people now. You have the Jews and you have the uh, people that the Assyrians left there who weren't Jewish. They worshipped all the gods of the land. So over time, they began to intermarry. That was the first mistake because uh, you didn't intermarry according to the law. And so the, the purest Jews looked down on the Samaritans for that. But in addition to that, these myths began to spring up. Um, one of them was about Jacob's well. And so the Samaritans began to worship at Jacob's well. So this is a holy site where Jesus decides to stop. This is a site that all the Samaritans would have known well and all the myths that had surrounded it. Now, Deuteronomy 12 said that the Jews could only worship in the temple. They couldn't worship anywhere else. And so when the Samaritans, these half-Jews, began to worship at this other place in Samaria, Sychar or Sukkar, on the mountain, um, the purest Jews said, you're not keeping the law. And what are the Jews good at in the Old Testament? You're not like us, so stay out. And so there began this deep divide. 722 B.C., by the time Jesus' day came around, it was a very strong divide, buried deep in the cultural conscience of this nation. So John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria. In other words, this is a divine appointment. This is part of God's plan. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sukkar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Remember, this is a holy place. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, um, I wish there was some way to make it stronger because in Greek it's very strong. He is flat, exhausted. He is worn out, which may give some indication that he went as fast as he could to get here because he had a divine appointment. He had to meet someone. He finally makes it, and he's exhausted, so he sits down. And a Samaritan woman comes to draw water. Here's the cultural faux pas. Jewish men didn't speak to women. They certainly didn't speak to Samaritan women. And they certainly didn't speak to women with a past like this one has. And Jesus says, will you give me something to drink? Now, his disciples had gone into town to buy food, which is a good thing because we find out later that they kind of want to correct him about this. This is not an acceptable thing to do, Jesus. But what have we already learned? Jesus doesn't mind breaking cultural rules and values, does he? He doesn't mind stepping on people's toes. He doesn't mind doing the unexpected. He doesn't mind making a fool of himself in the eyes of the people that are looking. So he asks the woman that, and the woman says, not sarcastically, I think with surprise, you're a Jew. And I'm a Samaritan woman, just in case you didn't get that. And yet, you're asking me for a drink? This is a cultural faux pas. This is a, an embarrassment. 
This is humiliating. So Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living, living water. Now we've talked about the fact that John likes these uh, words that have double meanings. They're double entendres. We've seen it all a couple times where it can be confusing. And so he loves to do that. He loves to trip people up just a little bit to get their attention. The word for living water can mean flowing water. Part of the myth about Jacob's well was that this well produced flowing water continuously. It's miraculous. And somehow in the ancient time before these people, uh, this water started producing this well. So Jesus is using a term here that could mean flowing water. Uh, so the translators, they help us to see that he really means living water. But it's, it's, kind of a, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek. He's kind of got this sparkle in his eye, a twinkle, as he says to her. And she says, but sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this flowing water? You can't even get into the well. Are you greater than our father Jacob? This is a significant question. This is the turning point in the story. This is where we now begin to learn why Jesus came to this point in time. Because he wanted to convince the crowd, the people that lived there, who exalted Jacob very highly, yes, I am. Yes, I am. Now, if you were privileged to discover the secret of the universe, maybe you developed the answer to end AIDS. Maybe you figured out what it means to solve the human trafficking problem. Where would you go with that information? Would you go to a homeless person? Would you go to a prostitute? Would you go to someone in a hospice dying of AIDS? Probably not. You'd probably want to go to President Obama or some of the government officials, somebody high up. Where did Jesus go? He went to the lowest of the low. One of the most broken people in all of culture. Last week, he went to the highest person in culture and stumped Nicodemus. This week, he goes to the lowest. First of all, she's a woman. In that culture, sorry, women, that's a step down. But she's just not a woman. She's a Samaritan woman, a half-breed. But she's not just a Samaritan woman. We're about to learn that she's a very promiscuous woman. She's had five husbands, and now she's living with a man. It's not her husband. So Jesus stoops down to the very bottom to challenge some of the most foundational principles in Jewish theology. One, being part of the kingdom is not an ethnic idea. Because he's now moving into the world of the Gentiles. These are half-Gentiles. At the end of this chapter, he heals the son of a Gentile leader. Child of a Gentile leader, I mean. And so he moves, he's, he's making that turn to go to the Gentiles. Second of all, this is not a gender discussion. Deuteronomy 12. All of Israel had to gather three times a year to worship God at the temple. It was the men who were required to come. They could bring their wives, but they didn't have to. The men were required to come. And who's Jesus talking to? A woman. There's a third, a second barrier just blew away. Third, Deuteronomy 12. You can only worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And where is Jesus now? He's in Samaria. 
It is not a geographical place. So Judaism had conceived of worship of the Messiah in terms of ethnicity, gender, and location. And with one simple statement or example or experience, Jesus takes all that apart. The kingdom is something very new. Something we have never seen before on the earth. It's not geographically bound. In Christ, there is no male or female. There is no Jew or Greek. Galatians 3 tells us. And we see Jesus' early experience in teaching here beginning to take all that apart. So he gives her the puzzle. For everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. And she says, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep drawing water. And that's when Jesus says, go call your husband. That was a culturally right thing to do. Go call call your husband. And she says, I don't have one. He says, you're right, you've had five. He has a little bit of insight, doesn't he? He's exposing to her one of the foundational truths of this new kingdom that, that when the Spirit comes, we never thirst again. So in John chapter 2, at the wedding of Cana, he turns the, the water into wine and he displays his glory. Then in John chapter 3, he said to Nicodemus, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, and for those of you that were here last week, we went back and looked at Ezekiel 36 and 37, water and Spirit were both metaphors for the new covenant, the coming of the Spirit of God when he would indwell us. So now we know that water is connected to Spirit. And for the rest of John, water is connected to Spirit. It becomes a metaphor. So now he talks about this living water You will never be thirsty. And she's puzzled out of her mind. What on earth are you talking about? Just like Nicodemus. So he doesn't answer her question. He says, go call your husband. Why on earth would he do that? Why wouldn't he answer her question? I think what he wants to do is he wants to let her know who he is. And so he says, you don't have a husband. The fact is, you've had five. And the man you're with now is not your husband. What you've said is just true. So her response, I can see that you are a prophet. This is not sarcasm. I think for the first time, she's beginning to make that turn. Earlier, he was only a Jew. Now he's been raised to a prophet. And we see this movement in her where she's, he's doing what it takes to draw her into a relationship with him. Some of you might be in that place. You ever get the feeling that God's just kind of tapping you on the shoulder? Trying to get your attention. He's in the shadows. He's out in the wings whispering your name. He's trying to get your attention, trying to pull you closer. That's what Jesus is doing right here. As he's pulling her closer. So he says to her um, the truth about her life. And he does it in a way that is not embarrassing her. It's not judging her. It's not embarrassing her. He's not focused on the behavior. He's communicating, I know the truth about you. And by the way, that's what it means to serve the living God, Jesus. He knows the truth about each one of us, and it's okay. It's okay to be broken. We said last week it's okay to be confused. I appreciate the emails from some of you that wrote me and said, tell me the verses you're confused about. I didn't think any of you would do that. 
It's okay to be confused. It's okay to be broken. Jesus knows the truth, and he doesn't shy away from embarrassing himself in culture with a woman he already knew would bring shame to him. Every other rabbi would have gone the other direction. We have a glimpse of who this Messiah is. He cares more about people than anything else. He cares more about you than anything else. So she says, I can see that you are a prophet. Now she raises the core issue that divided the Jews and the Samaritans. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. In other words, she's saying, you're a prophet. Nobody can can look into my life and see what you just saw. And so help me solve this dilemma. What does this mean? Because we get this fight going on. And so Jesus says, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. So it's not about geography. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Now, this is the only time that this exchange occurs. Only once is Jesus called a Jew. And she called him a Jew about ten verses earlier. You're a Jew. So he took advantage of it. Salvation comes through the Jews. He's a Jew. What he's doing is he's beginning to turn the spotlight onto himself so she can capture who he is. Yet a time is coming and now has come. See it? A time is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. And so Jesus is drawing this very promiscuous woman into this relationship with him. And she is becoming the very person that the Father seeks. He seeks people who will worship him in spirit and in truth. Can you see that she's moving closer very steadily? And he's not condemned her. He's not judged her. All he did was speak words of truth. He exposed her, that's all. So that she could get a glimpse that this really is the Messiah. So she's on this journey. So the woman said, I know that Messiah, who is called the Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And here are the golden words. Jesus said, I, the one speaking to you, am he. It's there. It's complete. It's a journey. John gives us this picture that belief is a journey. It's a journey of faith. It's a journey where wherever you start, I don't know where all of you are. Wherever you start on that journey, you have to go someplace. I don't think anybody out there says, this is it, you're looking at it. Right? None of you look in the mirror and say, this is the end of the line, this is perfection. If it is, what a disappointment. I know me better than anybody else knows me. What a disappointment. No, I live every day with the belief, the hope, the conviction that there's something better. I'm moving someplace. My question to you is, where are you moving? Which direction are you moving? We have an example of a Messiah, Jesus, the one true God who draws people from wherever they are in that journey. It doesn't matter how broken you are. What a surprise that he would take the one of the most broken people in culture and share with her the foundational truth that worship involves the spirit inside of us. 
The world had never heard this before. For some of us, it's old hat because we've read it so many times. We've had 2,000 years to reflect on it. But these are the first times she heard it, right? The first time that she's heard it. It's remarkable. The water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. It's a fountain. That's what happens when the spirit of the living God indwells us. It becomes a fountain of water. You ever been around a big fountain that just gushes water? What happens if you get too close? What happens? You get wet. This is a statement about us. This is a statement about what happens when God indwells us. The people around us get wet. It gets kind of messy. Doesn't it? Don't be ashamed of Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. Be willing to tell anybody. I love it. There's a, there's a fun part that our culture right now is so hard on Christianity. I'll tell you part of a story. I was in San Francisco a couple years ago at a, a conference for Evangelical Theological Society, which means you sit around and listen to papers being read about theology all day long. And uh, I know that that's all of your dream, right? And after about two days of that, I'm pretty tired. <laughs> the brain's full. I've had enough. So I say to one of my friends there, I said, why don't we go down and watch the Broncos? The Broncos are playing Jets on Thursday night. Tim Tebow, let's go down and watch the Broncos play and have a beer and relax. What do you think? He said, great. So we went down and we sat down and we ordered a pizza and we're sitting there side by side watching this big screen. And um, the guys in front of us, three guys were obviously from San Francisco. They're businessmen, probably in the early 30s. And uh, they were obviously Jets fans. So I started trash talking with them. Tim Tebow's up there, you know, we're losing. We did win, but we were losing at the time. So they started trash-talking back. So finally one of them turns around and says, so what do you do on a commercial? And I thought, here's my chance. And I said, uh, theology. And he goes, huh? And I pulled out my business card. I said, yeah, Christian theology. Here I have a PhD in it. Carl, give him yours. He's got one too. That's what we do, Christian theology. He goes, Christian theology? I don't believe any of that crap. And I said, you don't? And he said, no. Now, see, this is where it's fun to be a Christian. I said, you don't? He said, no. I said, wow, sucks to be you. <laughs> and he goes, what do you mean it sucks to be me? And I said, yeah. He goes, why do you believe it? And I said, well, that's easy. The real answer question is why you don't believe it. And he goes, well, it's all myth. And I said, okay, let me get this straight. You have read the Bible, and you've explored the claims of Christianity, and you've come to a reasoned conclusion that Christianity is mythological, right? Did I get that right? And he looks at me and he goes, I hate PhDs. My, my degree just paid for itself. <laughs> and I said, oh, it's going to get a lot worse. I said, tell me the truth. I said, is that the process you took? Or did you come to a conclusion based on what the world around you said? And he said, I came to a conclusion. I let other people shape my thinking. And I said, you should be ashamed of yourself. And he said, when you put it that way, I am. Then he asked the golden question. Why do you believe? The game disappeared. And we had an hour-long discussion about Christianity. And now, by now, his buddies are involved, and they want to know. Don't be ashamed of Christianity. Don't be ashamed to call yourself a Christian. The world doesn't get it. The world doesn't get it. We serve the risen Lord Jesus. Here he is right here. He's doing the complete opposite of what the world said he's going to do. 
We're going to celebrate communion in just a minute. In fact, I want to invite the communion workers and the people that are going to pray to come on up. But I want you to listen to this last little part. Verse 27, the disciples came back to Jesus and they're surprised to find him talking with this woman. Verse 28, leaving her water jar, the woman went back to the town and said to the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? It's really hard sometimes to translate Greek to English because um, when you ask a question in Greek, much like in English, you expect a certain answer. So I can ask you, um, I can ask you, uh, you want nice weather. Do you want nice weather? And what am I expecting? What kind of answer? Yes. You just know that intuitively because you speak this language. In Greek, they had very clear ways of communicating this. So she does something very surprising here. She asks the question in a way that shows, that expects a negative answer. So you could translate it this way. Come see a man who told me everything I ever did. This can't be the Messiah, can it? And I think the reason she did that is because she is a woman of no account. It doesn't get any lower than this woman is. Right here. She's the very bottom. She has no respect from anyone. Not even the church leadership. I mean the the leadership in the village, the town. No one respects her. And so if she were to come back and say, I found the Messiah, they'd all laugh at her. And so she does something very surprising because she already knows the answer. She places herself in a very humble position. She goes, this can't be the Messiah, can it? Which, I'm a guy. Guys like challenges. And so all the men say, well, we'll figure this out. They came out of the town and made their way toward them. The whole village came out just because of the way she expressed it. Verse 39 Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony where she said, he told me everything that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with him, and he stayed. And because of his words, many became believers. Now listen to what they said to the woman, these villagers. We no longer believe because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. We serve a risen Savior. He is courageous. He's bold. He's not afraid to become unclean because of me. He's not ashamed of me. He's not ashamed of you. It doesn't matter what she had done. It doesn't matter what you have done. This doesn't matter. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so thankful. Do you feel God tapping on your shoulder, trying to get your attention? We're going to invite you down to enjoy communion with us. So for those of you that have communion, come on out. And um, you're you're welcome to come and invite a friend. Uh, Your traditions are all different. I know that. And so if you want to take some time down here to pray, that's good. Uh, If you want to take take the elements and go back to your seat and reflect and meditate, that's okay. If you want to take them right here, um, that's fine as well. Come on up. And... uh, This is a community time where we experience Christ together. All of you are on a journey. I already know that. The question is, where are you going? I can't answer that question. I have enough trouble answering that for myself. 
but you're on a journey. When you approach the risen Lord Jesus, here's what you can be assured of. Two things. Number one is you will be loved. That's, that's a guarantee. You'll be loved. And number two, um, you'll be exposed. That's how transformation occurs. Is when people help us to see areas of our life that need change. And the wonderful thing about moving toward Christ is that we become more of who we are. I'm Jim Howard. I like being me. I don't want to be you. And, uh, and the more I grow in Christ, the more of Jim Howard I become. And that's a fun thing. That's unique to Christianity. You become more of who you are because of what God is doing internally. So I want you to go and enjoy the rest of your week. I'm sure you've had fun over the 4th of July. For all of the visitors, thanks so much for coming and worshiping with us today. So on your way out, say hello to people and greet them. Have a great week.